Hi everyone, we have a special end of year edition of Politico's EU Confidential podcast coming up after a message from this week's sponsor. For more than 100 years, Raytheon has proven its commitment to partnering with industries and allies in Europe to advance new technologies and increase protection against a full spectrum of threats. In a world of uncertainty, Raytheon is defending our transatlantic partners by creating trusted, tested and innovative solutions that make the world a safer place. Welcome to a special bumper end-of-year edition of Politico's EU Confidential podcast. Ryan Heath has headed off on holiday, I'm Andrew Gray, but nobody else seems to have got the memo about taking things easy. It's been a very busy week in European politics. The European Court of Justice told Uber it's a transport company. Who knew? The European Commission told Poland it was trampling on the rule of law and could lose its right to vote inside the EU, although it probably won't. Theresa May told her deputy he'd have to quit, losing her third cabinet minister in two months. And as we put the podcast together, the people of Catalonia are going to the polls at the end of a tumultuous year there. There's been so much going on, it feels like last year, not last week, that EU leaders gave the green light for phase two of the Brexit talks. Now, in this week's edition, we have one of the best talkers in Brussels, NATO's Deputy Assistant Secretary General, Jamie Shea. He's been in the city for nearly 40 years, and in our interview, we talk about how Brussels has changed during that time. We also talk about his role as NATO's frontman during the Kosovo War, and about the challenges the Alliance faces today. So Russia and Ukraine get a mention, as does cyber warfare and hybrid warfare, and also the EU's new defence pact, PESCO. That's all coming up in this week's EU Confidential. But first, a brief review of the year. I rounded up some of Politico's policy reporters, the people who cover the nitty-gritty of what goes on inside the EU every day, and asked them to pick out the big stories on their beats in 2017, and why they mattered. So let's hear from them, and you'll hear a few other familiar voices as well. Hello, my name's Simon Marks, and I cover food and agriculture here at Politico. Without a doubt, the biggest story on my beat this year was Europe's decision to renew the license for glyphosate for another five years. This was a major sticking point that was a huge deal for the pesticide industry who feared that the world's biggest selling chemical in the agriculture sector might not have been renewed. Farmers were extremely worried, thinking they might have to change their entire model of and way of doing farming. Environmental groups in the end were extremely disappointed having lobbied actively and ferociously on this issue. I am fighting every day for the great people of this country. Therefore, in order to fulfill my solemn duty to protect America and its citizens, the United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord. My name is Kalina Roshakov, and I cover energy and climate policy in Europe. In terms of what I think the biggest story this year was for me on the climate beat was definitely the actual announcement of Donald Trump, the US president, 
that he would withdraw the United States from the Paris climate deal. It was an anticipated announcement, yet when it came, everyone was still shocked and it provoked a flurry of reactions, um, especially from European countries, not least France and Germany, Italy, and of course the European Commission, which have long been seen as major climate leaders, so to speak, trying to reassert themselves, also trying to send the US a message that just announcing a withdrawal of the Paris climate deal wouldn't mean that the rest of the world would follow suit and that any efforts to cut emissions and prepare the world for hotter temperatures would stop as a consequence of Trump's announcement. I think in terms of the biggest effect on the EU, one could definitely see that European leaders, including Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker, suddenly start to talk about climate much more, also using it as a diplomatic way of forging closer ties with China, for example, which before had formed a G2 with the US. Since China and the US are the two biggest polluters in the world, these two really carried the heaviest weight in that whole debate. And now with the US, at least the White House, out of the picture largely, it was again time for the EU to step forward. Of course, there are questions whether you can do it as a body of 28 or soon 27 countries, with each having different interests and economic concerns. And I think over the next years we will see whether the EU can really fill that gap. Many say it can't, and of course there's also the argument whether it's absolutely necessary to fill it because there are more and newer players that are becoming ever more important in the global fight against climate change, including cities companies are stepping up and other non-national or non-government players, so to speak. France will not give up the fight. I reaffirm clearly that the Paris Agreement remains irreversible and will be implemented. Make our planet great again. Hi, my name is Kate Bolangero and I am Politico's Fisheries and Oceans journalist. The biggest story on my beat this year, I would say, is the push for quotas in the Mediterranean. Fisheries Commissioner Carmen Nuvella has made it his goal to bring in more fisheries management tools to the Mediterranean. It's one of the most overfished basins in the EU and it also has some of the least amount of regulation because a lot of the boats are small and small boats are often exempt from regulation. So the Commission has made it its goal to make sure that it can regulate the Mediterranean better and to make sure that it has the same rules as the rest of the EU basins. This year they brought in quota for swordfish, which was a fish that was very exploited and it was overexploited. So that is something that they've been working on and it's been a few years in the making. Now they're trying to bring in a plan for the Adriatic Sea, which would involve Slovenia, Croatia and Italy for small pelagics. So that's anchovies and sardines. So that plan is expected next year, but there's been a lot of developments over this year about it and it's very much a big fish fight because Italy has not wanted to bring in quotas at all. Croatia and Slovenia appear to be a little more flexible, but it's definitely going to be tough for the Commission to really bring into fisheries management in the region an idea of quotas and total allowable catches. Today we agreed in principle on the future economic partnership agreement. The depth of this agreement goes far beyond our shores. Hi, my name is Hans von der Burchardt. I'm trade reporter with Politico. And after last year, I was somehow like the, the CETA guy on the Canada trade agreement, which was a big thing. This year, I became the, the Japan guy. And at the end of last year, we had the breakdown of talks in Tokyo. We saw again a big push this year of 
Actually, following up on this decision by the Trump administration, the U.S. withdrawal from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a big deal including 11 countries in the Pacific region, this withdrawal caused a big shock and motivated many countries to engage in new negotiations or intensify negotiations with Europe. And so also yeah, Japan, they somehow saw that it's time to switch horses from the U.S. towards the European Union. So we saw these trade talks really gaining tractions again in March and we were kind of like reporting on how this came to a big push, uh, a political push in July to do a political agreement on this deal, to finally agree on the sensitive issues like car tariffs and agriculture tariffs, which was before always an area where Japan would never wanted to do a deal. And yeah, then we had this deal actually just uh, concluded now in the beginning of December and for the first time actually the European Union decided to really split an agreement. The European Union and Japan could not agree on the provisions of how foreign investors could eventually sue. So in the end they had to for this splitting of trade agreements which was a big thing now that uh, trade agreements can be ratified easier by having the one big trade part passing here in Brussels and the investment part eventually if they agree at some stage will go through the national parliaments. Today the Commission has decided uh, to fine Google uh, 2.4 billion euros for breaching EU antitrust rules. Google has abused its market dominance as a search engine by giving illegal advantages to another Google products, its shopping comparison service. I'm Laurent Cyrillus. I cover privacy and cybersecurity here at Politico in Brussels. So for technology and politics, 2017 was the year of big tech. Not because companies like Google and Facebook were incredibly influential, maybe dominant in some markets, but also because big tech like Big Pharma or Big Tobacco became a synonym for an industry that sort of has gone off the rails. In 2017, we've seen European regulators sort of frowning at what companies like Facebook, Google and others have been doing when it comes to market dominance, the lack of competition in a lot of markets, privacy concerns over what is being done with people's data, with European citizens' personal data, and also debates like fake news, which are about distorting information. And so the initial idea of the internet as sort of a force for good, as an infrastructure to exchange information, that got a big dent this year because politicians started really asking critical questions about the promises that internet companies make of making the world a better place. Increasingly people are wondering, do internet companies actually make the world a better place? And this is something that 2017 will certainly be remembered for, for the start of a pushback towards the dominance of these companies. A selection of the big stories on the beats of Politico's policy reporters in 2017. And in a moment, we'll head for NATO headquarters for an interview with Deputy Assistant Secretary General for Emerging Security Challenges, Jamie Shea. That's after a message from this week's sponsor. Every day, Raytheon's most advanced capabilities, ranging from missile defence to cyber, help NATO allies protect what matters most. Our long-standing partnerships with European industry drive local innovation and allow small and medium enterprises to benefit from international programs and technology transfer. From outer space to cyberspace, 
Raytheon's network of interoperable systems turns data into defense, giving European partners the most modern and reliable protection. Now, just before our interview, a reminder that you can rate or review this podcast on Apple Podcasts and various other platforms. And we're always very grateful when you do. Uh, you can also send us feedback to playbook at politico.eu. And that was promised our interview with NATO's Jamie Shea. It was, as they say in this business, a wide-ranging conversation. He's been in Brussels since 1980, so there was a lot to talk about, including his time as spokesman during NATO's first war, the Kosovo War, when he became something of a household name for a couple of months at least. And we talk a bit about the challenges that that posed. We also talk about NATO today, and he mentions three particular fronts or challenges that NATO faces, a more conventional one uh, with Russia to the east. He talks about the southern front and the challenges of instability in North Africa and the Middle East. And he talks, if you like, about the internal front, the fact that NATO countries can be destabilised from within by adversaries who can target everything from the media to power networks to online tax systems. So there was a lot to talk about, but I began by asking him what Brussels was like when he arrived here in 1980 and how it's changed. Well, I think the pace of life was massively slower, of course. Uh, in NATO, it was the Cold War still. It was still sort of a decade when I came before the Berlin Wall came down, so it was still very much in the throes of the Cold War. And, of course, at that time, you know, NATO didn't have all of these multiple missions in Afghanistan, in the Gulf of Aden, in Libya, in the Balkans, everything that we've developed since. It just had one single mission, one single purpose, which, uh, to be frank with you, was to wait to be attacked, if I can put it that way. Obviously, to provide a balance of power in the East on the assumption that you know, this would deter the Soviet Union. And therefore, the success of NATO was, was boredom in a funny kind of way, it was the fact that nothing happened from day one. You didn't want anything to happen because the only happening scenario would have been a confrontation, which of course everybody was trying to avoid. And so uh, to some degree, yes, the pace of life was, was slow. And this organisation was totally different. It was much more male, very few women around apart from secretary functions. Thank God that's changed uh, massively. And uh, when I came along, the alliance was 15 members. Uh, so if you think today it's virtually sort of doubled, you can imagine that it was less colourful with essentially North American and Western European member states. And the, the profile of many of the people on the international staff, I was the exception of course, coming along as a youngster, were sort of retired colonels mm. uh, who had had a military career and were serving on the international staff. So the organisation, as I say, was far less diverse uh, than what it is today and essentially sort of looking through binoculars of what was going on in the Warsaw Pact. But deterrence had worked for a long, long time since the Alliance you know, was set up in the 1940s. So uh, there was no great reason to change it. That said, that said, I did have a little bit of an excitement in, in the early years because um, uh, the Soviet leader uh, in the mid-70s, Leonid Brezhnev, had decided to deploy these SS-20 missiles. I don't Andrew, if you remember this, you're too young. But these were sort of a new generation of intermediate-range missiles that were pointed at Western Europe. And NATO had adopted a twin-track decision, as we called it, in 1979, just before I arrived, to deploy cruise and Pershing nuclear weapons in Europe as, as a counter. And that, for a while, created quite a stir with peace movements. Remember CND, the Greenham Common Peace Camp in the UK, equivalents over here. 
And to some degree, that was a challenge for NATO, but it was a great opportunity for me because that got me into public diplomacy and press and PR for the first time as I got a job of making the case for why you know, SS-20s were bad and Cruz and Pershing were you know, not being aggressive but responding. And indeed, I often joke with my students that uh, at home I still have a picture of Leonid Brezhnev. And when I go home at night, I say, thank you, Leonid, in a perverse way, by which I mean, you know, if you hadn't done this, uh, I would never have got, you know, out of this infrastructure committee that I was sitting on at the time, looking at you know, tarmac on airfields, and, and got into something much more you know, stimulating for me, which is press and media work. But, but so in other words, yes, NATO was much quieter than today. There's none of the hyperactivism that you see. Similarly with Brussels. I mean, the EU was there, of course, but same thing. Vastly reduced uh, membership, fewer attributions, you know, no external action service at that time, only a couple of pillars rather than the, the three plus that we have now. You didn't have all of the think tanks, uh, a much smaller press corps and the like, and the, it was Brussels was much more of a provincial town. It really didn't have the feel of a sort of major international centre that it's had since. Uh, but um, well, of course, you know, it's now changed, but it's, I think, in, on every front, changed for the better. I wanted to ask about your, your time as the, the spokesman during the Kosovo War. I imagine was a real step change. It's one thing, a briefing on policy or exercises, but this is, is NATO for the first time going into military action against a, a sovereign country. Uh, how did you adapt to that? How big a shock, I guess, was it suddenly to be kind of front and centre on you know, televised briefings? The, the kind of the face of the war in some ways. Well, for a short period, memorably the famous Warhol dictum of 50, famous for 15 minutes sort of thing, certainly. I, I think that the shock was in a way that for a year we, not only we, the EU, the, the powers as we call them, were, were in a diplomatic uh, diplomacy phase mm. where it was the threat of force rather than the use of force and the belief that the threat of force would avoid the use of force. Remember the Serb leader at the time, uh, Milosevic, uh, came under a lot of pressure and I think in NATO there was a very genuine view that provided we made that threat of force credible, he you know, ultimately would agree to an accommodation with the Kosovo Albanians. Not on independence, uh, that wasn't what we were looking for at the time, but purely you know, to withdraw some of his police forces and, and stop obviously the, some of the... Uh, uh, the harassment of, of the Albanian, the Kosovo Albanian population. And when that didn't succeed, uh, and suddenly we found ourselves having to uh, sort of cross the Rubicon to use foresight, yeah, to some degree we weren't prepared for it at the time. I mean, there were military plans, but nobody understood that when you're threatening use of force, public media attention can be pretty low, but when you're actually using force, it's a completely different story. Uh, and for me, this was illustrated in a very clear way when the day before, on March the 22nd, the day before we announced the beginning of the air campaign, uh, there were five journalists downstairs in NATO, you know in the press area, the, the Lund's Press Theatre, and I, uh, I swear I'm not exaggerating, the next day, 450. Uh, uh, it, the media, in fact, mobilised as fast as the NATO military, if not faster. Uh, unbelievable. And uh, they were there, as you probably heard from some of your old-timer friends in Brussels, more or less throughout the next 78 days they didn't bud. So we suddenly had a problem of not only you know, accurate information being put, you know, test, you know, because obviously while the negotiations were going on, uh, we weren't, didn't have to communicate very much, so a, a sudden need to get out accurate information, but also on the 24-hour news cycle, 
you know, the old NATO, you know, a press conference every three weeks or once a month, had to give way to several press conferences a day. Got to really provide the information and the facts quickly. And of course, that puts you under pressure because the more information you're giving, more quickly, the more chance you're going to make mistakes, get it wrong, and then your credibility can suffer. Was that a kind of battle you had to win inside NATO? Or were there some people saying, no, we should just do propaganda, we should just, you know, mislead, or, you know, within the greater goal, it's acceptable to do that kind I of think, thing? I think, you know, you've, you've heard of Clausewitz, the fog of war, yeah. uh, and that was true. Uh, and and, and you know, today, hopefully, uh, we're in an age now with satellites, you know, with drones, with sensors, uh, you know, we've, uh, in NATO today, a much more focused intelligence collection effort. You know, we've got this new division now, which we've set up, the intelligence division with civilian military feeds. Uh, you know, you saw with ZAPAD that NATO, the ZAPAD maneuver with Russia recently, that NATO had a much more focused effort to uh, be able to sort of assess what was going on. So I think massive, you, you know, there's been that enormous shift with massive, you know, if you look at military budgets today, what's going on in the information technology side, you know, sensors, satellites, you know, drones, uh, roboticization, you know, integration, big data, algorithms, uh, you know, real-time situational awareness, uh, uh, you know, data fusion, data distribution, so that the private soldier today in his helmet has more awareness than a, a general in the First World War in his chateau, it's true behind the lines of the entire thing. You know, it's just like, you know, there's more computing power in your iPhone, uh, about six times more than there was in NASA uh, in the late 1960s in the United States. So, I mean, obvious things to say. So, you know, now I think that, that that shift has occurred. But of course, in 1999, it still wasn't a, a quite that case. Mm. I'll ask just a couple more on Kosovo and then come, come on to the present. I'm curious about a couple of things. One is that uh, I think at one point, Alistair Campbell, Tony Blair's uh, spin doctor in chief was was kind of dispatched here to to help you out. How, what kind of an experience was that? What was that like? Well, it, it was an interesting experience, and, and I've been very complimentary about Alistair, and I will remain complimentary. I mean, when you're in an operation, uh, you've got what NATO is doing, but you've got also what the nations are doing. You know, the MOD, the the Pentagon in the United States, you know, the German Defense Ministry, you know, the, the 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 they are flying the planes. NATO doesn't have planes. They're the nations integrated into NATO command structure. So if you really want to know what's going on, you have to have a feed with Washington, you have to have a feed with London and so on. And I think, you know, and I made this clear, what Alistair was really able to do, obviously being close to Tony Blair at the time, it, it was able to bring in the integration of uh, those various capitals in a way that made it much easier so that we could tell them what we were saying, they could tell us uh, if there was an incident, we could have a conference call immediately on those capitals. What do you know? What's happened? You know, what can we reliably say that we know it's true? What do we need to find out? When can we find it out? The second thing, he was able to mobilise a lot of resources. Uh, the NATO press service was tiny at the time because we weren't used to fighting wars and, or having press briefings around the clock. And, and Alistair was able, simply, you know, within the UK government, to sort of go to the... Uh, government communications centre and say, right, you know, I need 30 media monitors to come and help NATO monitor press. And I believe it or not, the next day they were here. There was one Scottish lady who was shopping in Glasgow in Socky Hall Street who tells me that she was literally phoned up by Alistair, dropped her shopping bags and was on a plane within hours to, to, to Brussels. You know, we were organised for peacetime. Maybe, yes, self-criticism, we should have internally been more geared up for the, you know, the surge that you need when you know, you've got CNN coming in at three o'clock in the morning saying we need a briefing for our Asian audience. Uh, so I understood that, I understand that now. 
but uh, but as I say, at the time, uh, that was a uh, you know, he, he was a hard taskmaster, you know, because uh, in <laughs> running election campaigns for the Labour Party, you can imagine. But but in a way, it gave us, I think, a, a necessary discipline. And also the other thing is obviously if you're a spokesman, you know, if you have to front up and perhaps always and, and defend things that perhaps sometimes you're not comfortable defending. And I wondered if there were ever there were ever times during that war where you, you felt, I, I don't, for example, the, the bombing of the television station in Belgrade, which is very controversial, where you thought, I've got to go out and, and defend this, but I'm not, you know, this is not really what I would have uh, wanted yeah, yeah, to do. Look, you know, you can't. If you can't, if you don't believe in something, you're not going to be convincing, right? You know, you're, you're, if you don't believe in God, it, God, God yourself, you're hardly going to sort of uh, convert anybody, uh, and 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 so you you have to basically believe in in what you're doing to to be to be a spokesman. That's absolutely true, not uncritically, because clearly you also have to be able to have a say in the decision making process, uh, in the policy and how things are presented. So internally, you have to have a voice. You know, in recent years, you've been looking. You're looking at, at future challenges for NATO. Do you ever get the? Have you ever had the sense in recent years that things are coming full circle? In that, you know, we talked about when you first arrived here, and the focus being on the Warsaw Pact, Soviet Union, uh, and suddenly, if you like, in recent years, to you know, put it crudely, Russia is back. Uh, Russia is a focus for NATO in a way that it, it wasn't. Um, you know, maybe a decade ago or more. Do you see similarities, or is this a completely different scenario? It just happens to be. Russia again that's the focus. Well I certainly think that we have to take account again in a way that maybe we didn't do over the last uh, 25 uh, years after the collapse of the Berlin Wall of what you might call geopolitics or state-on-state rivalries in a more competitive world. Uh, I think there is some truth in that. I I think that we now now do live in a, a world in which everything is contested. You can't any longer talk about my space you know, for example, uh, you know, the Mediterranean, the Romans called that Mare Nostrum, our sea. And for a long time, for example, you wouldn't have seen any Russian ships in the Mediterranean after the collapse of the Soviet Union, but now they're back. And I, I don't mean this in a, in a way that we see Russia uh, as, as, as an adversary there, but simply that you know, other people are present. China now sells its ships through the Mediterranean, even exercises with the Russians in the, in the Baltics, is in the high north. Again, it's not an aggressive thing, it's simply that we now are geopolitically in a more competitive type of world. Cyber, of course, is also a good example of where you know, people interfere with in your domains. You know, nothing is sacred any longer. Uh, you know, in your elections, in your media space, uh, you know, in, in funding your political party, you know, other political parties. So I think that you know, part of this is a recognition that you know, we now have to focus once again on great powers and balancing great powers. I hope that clearly we don't have to do what we did during the Cold War in order to be successful in doing this. Uh, because remember during the Cold War there were 300,000 American troops, there were 7,000 tactical nuclear weapons deployed in Europe and the UK had 60,000 of the British Army the Rhine, the French 40,000. You, you get the idea and, and I don't think anybody, anybody wants to you know, have to go back to that type of level of military mobilisation in order to ensure peace in, in Europe. Uh, and I think what NATO is doing at the moment is you know, a much obviously more modest deployment uh, to show you know, solidarity, political will, determination, but in a way that's clearly non-provocative and in a way which I think sends a clear signal to Russia that look, you know, 
but there's no inevitability that we have the kind of arms race situation we had during the Cold War. And, you know, let's now sit down and talk and balance this at much lower levels of forces. You know, we've been proposing to the Russians things like risk reduction measures and transparency of exercises and so on. Uh, and let's hope in 2018 we have some success of that. So, yes, in terms of having once again to take account the great power rivalries, uh, you know, we can't exist in any longer in a world where everything is Bosnia or everything is Kosovo or everything is Afghanistan. Uh, no. Uh, the second, but there are two big changes vis-a-vis that. The, the first change is the one we've been talking about, this capacity of states to be able to interfere far more in the, on the home front of states than was the case. I mean, if you think of the Soviet Union, uh, it was a very powerful country, but its influence within Western countries after the communist parties began to decline in the 1950s was minimal. You know, Soviet propaganda, the influence of that, you know, did people watch Soviet TV like they watch RT today? <laughs> did they read TASS like they read Sputnik? I mean, you get where I'm coming from. I mean, clearly not, you know. Did the Soviet Union have the control of energy networks? You know, or, you know, was it a in big investor on our stock exchanges? Again, no, no, no. So that's, I think, the first big change. The second big change is that we also now have the South, which we didn't have during the Cold War when we had this belt of countries to our South that didn't always have the most favourable regimes, but still had a certain degree of stability, which in the wake of you know, all of the turmoil and turbulence, Syria and so on, uh, Libya, has gone now, uh, which of course is generating a lot of uh, headaches. Many of them, of course, not going to be tackled by a classical military response, but they're going to require a long-term effort in you know, capacity building, reform, assistance, in that region. NATO can't play that role alone, but on the other hand, the Allies, particularly those in the South, you know, do expect NATO to be part of that. So in other words, you know, during the Cold War, we asked me when we started the conversation, you asked me about NATO in 1980, we only had to worry about, you know, a very small area of the world, the Fulda Gap, you know, that was it, Checkpoint Charlie, um, and a balance of power, but was largely static, with a rather predictable Soviet Union which had become very conservative uh, and uh, uh, to some degree was far more predictable than what we have with Russia today, whereas a much smaller, less transparent group of people calling the shots. Uh, uh, less transparent than even the old Politburo, you think? Well, there were a lot more people involved. Uh, and, uh, you know, generally, I mean, I don't claim to be a criminologist, but generally, if I, you know, the Soviet Union that I knew at the time in 1980, the chairman of the uh, Central Committee uh, was not, you know, uh, a supreme ruler. But again, you know, now we have these two other fronts, the so-called hybrid front and the South. So, you know, now NATO has to walk with three legs mm. uh, and not just one leg. Just explain the hybrid front a bit more. Well, the, the, the hybrid front is, is this notion uh, that you can lose your social cohesion at home and you can suddenly find all kinds of polarisation and rifts occurring in your society, which are not necessarily only uh, the result of interference by another power. Uh, let's be honest, you know, we have our rifts anyway, right? But another power can quickly come in and say, ah, fertile territory, you know, there's a referendum here uh, and I can, you know, uh, exploit, I can polarise, I can inject some fake news and I can, you know, sort of, you know, push the knife in the wound to make this even more uncomfortable for, 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 for a government. Uh, and the, 
and the means to do this today are massively greater. As I say, you have uh, uh, business uh, networks, uh, you have media networks, you have funding of political parties, you have populist trend that plays in, in, into this. You're also dealing with a climate where, let's face it, you know, liberal, classical liberalism, uh, multilateralism, uh, you know, uh, institutional integration are, are not necessarily as popular or seen as the future uh, than they, they, they once were, where people you know, believe in security by putting up walls. So, so to some degree, you know, hybrid warfare is a kind of mixture of issues that we have, which we have to address. I think you know, looking at what's going on in Ukraine at the moment is a test case. Uh, that we need to examine very, very, very clearly. I mean, virtually nothing that Ukraine has, uh, nothing. You know, its election campaign, its electricity grid, its um, you know uh, airline uh, booking, its uh, MDOC uh, tax registration service. I mean, there's nothing that hasn't been attacked. Its telecom system has been taken down. Its cable uh, under the Black Sea in 2014 was cut. You know, it's a real object exercise in how you can literally bully an independent country and subjugate it. And I'm not saying that what works in Ukraine would work here because clearly we have a high degree of resilience. But, but you know, we, we know that you know, there are vulnerabilities also that, that could be exploited. With the EU, for the first time, for many years anyway, we, uh, we had this year our first coordinated exercise with the EU looking at these hybrid scenarios looking at a common scenario that both the NATO and the EU are accepted to work off of. So they played the scenario looking at what the, how they would play it. And we played it looking at how we would play it, because you know, different culture, you know, they would inter intervene more early with civil assets, we would you know, intervene perhaps later because it's a military asset. But the idea is that it's joined up so that somebody is doing something and you don't have big gaps. And at the end of it, you know, we can have lessons learned exercise where we sort of sense, you know, basically what we can learn from the way they handled it and what they can learn from the way we handled it and how gradually, you know, we harmonise procedures. You, you mentioned the European Union have just come from the summit at which PESCO, the Permanent Structured Cooperation, this new EU military cooperation pact has been formally launched. You know, there's obviously been a lot of debate over the years about the danger of duplication with NATO or competition with NATO. How do you view that now in terms of, I know that Secretary General Stoltenberg was there, obviously yeah. officially has NATO's yeah. blessing, but it's, it's not uncomplicated, right? I mean, it's not without its challenges too to, to make that work. Well, okay. I mean, start from first premises. I mean, the United States is very clear that uh, the Europeans have got to do more that's accepted. And the Europeans are also clear that it doesn't just come from NATO, it comes from EU summits, that they have to do more too. First principle, second principle, very easy. Um, the, the EU has a very fragmented uh, uh, set of capabilities, markets, you know, just a statistic, US 30 uh, major weapon systems, EU 176 major weapon systems, six times more. Uh, you know, EU, uh, about 50% of the military capability is not usable, lack of spare parts, lack of maintenance, and, 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 and so on. You know, and then we get into the duplication on R&D and training and equipment and all these things. So it's, it's obvious that it's no good the EU countries spending all of them 2% more, which is the NATO benchmark. I know that would, play, that would be very good if they do so, but it's no good if they do that under the existing business model which is then wasting a lot of the money through the same duplication uh, and fragmentation uh, and, and so on. So it's got to be about spending more, but then of course, you know, spending it better through uh, integration. 
uh, and uh, for example, McKinsey has just done a study, which you maybe wanted, you may may have seen Andrew. It's very good, you know, with the Munich Security Conference. They point out that, for example, if all of the EU countries spend you know two percent, but up their investment from twenty percent to thirty percent, this would free up one hundred and fifteen billion billion dollars uh, a year, which could then be spent on capability and so on. So, so the I think NATO clearly understands that you know extra effort has to also mean greater sort of integration of, of, of effort, yeah. otherwise we're not going to get, you know, that big extra boost. Uh, that, but should that, that integration be within NATO or, you know, with, with under the EU umbrella? Well, I think that essentially both organisations can are going to carry this forward. You know, we're working on that as well. But also, of course, you know, the EU can do a lot on its side with with, with PESCO and treaty based. Um, so essentially, you know, if, if you've got two guys rowing the boat, uh, you're going to get downstream a lot faster than if one guy. But, uh, but if they're uh, not rowing at the same rhythm, you might have now. Trouble. Now you you've said the same the, the same thing. I think on the NATO side, therefore, you know we can be the big beneficiaries of all this because you know, a stronger Europe is going to be good for NATO. US is going to be happier, you know, and, and you know, keep its commitment to organisations which are also relevant and responsive to US interests. Uh, President Trump's made that clear. And of course, you know, the EU will then also have capabilities to do things like in Mali or wherever, uh, that we're you know, Central African Republic. But there are exactly three sort of basic rules of the road that I, I'm not sure if I'm using the right expression of rules of the road, but sort of three principles that NATO would like to see. The, you know, no, number one, of course, is let's avoid duplication. So if one organization is doing something really well, you know, with a particular program which is working perfectly well, no need to get the same scientists and the same people, you know, meeting in a different place working on a parallel program. You know, so let's see, you know, who essentially is having the most success with a particular type of capability. That's the first thing. Second uh, thing, that when these capabilities are formed, you know, NATO in fact doesn't have any forces, and neither does the EU really. Uh, you know, we have some AWACS aircraft, and we have, but you know, basically, let's consider that it's a single set of forces. So we should increasingly make those sets of forces available to either organisation according to need. So that I think is a good principle too. Uh, you know, I mean, NATO is defending many EU countries and we're partnering with Finland and Sweden as well up in the Baltic area so you know there's nothing uh, there's no reason why you know what NATO is doing would not also be an EU priority because if NATO didn't exist the EU would clearly need to protect its own members and then uh, so let's you know have a sense of this kind of you know according to the demand availability so there's no reason why this shouldn't uh, benefit NATO's defense in the east and at the same time, you know, also joint operations together in the south. The third principle is that you know we've got a number of non-EU allies: Turkey, notably Norway, but others, you know, Iceland or Canada, obviously the United States. Uh, we're also going to have the uh, uh, UK as a non-EU NATO ally. So clearly, you know, they want to make a contribution. They could make a valuable contribution. I mean, the UK, for example, is 25% of EU defence spending at the moment, 25% of capabilities. So, so the principle we'd like here is that just like NATO reaches out to EU countries, not in NATO, like Finland and Sweden, and so similarly on the EU side, reach out to you know, our allies who are not in the EU to reinforce so that we have a certain reciprocity. One of the key things is that we have similar capability requirements. 
You know, because if we have one set of EU requirements that says the priority is helicopters, and NATO saying, no, 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 the priority is transport aircraft, and you, poor defence minister, are thinking, well, what is it? You know, no. So, you know, we, we come out with a common set of the kind of, in other words, our view of forces, military forces, is, is identical. Uh, you know, and, and whether, if the EU is better at delivering one package, that's fine. But as long as our overall concept of what kind of force structure we need is there, then you know, different countries politically will, you know, for different reasons. You know, one country, for example, may find okay, the EU route is more attractive to me because of the way in which a, a consortium is structured or the financing arrangements. Another country will say, no, no, I'm more comfortable with the, the NATO approach. And when you get into the nitty gritty, different countries have you know different sort of mechanisms in terms of you know their parliaments or their funding or the timeline or whatever. So it's not such a bad idea to give them sort of two routes. You know, you take the high road and I take the low road, you say Scotland. But uh, you know, but as long as we uh, get to Scotland, right, as the song says at the yeah. end of the day, yeah. <clears throat> That's the important thing. Thanks very much for your time. My pleasure. NATO's Jamie Shea talking to me in his office at NATO headquarters on Friday of last week. And that wraps up another edition of EU Confidential. In fact, that wraps up the podcast for this year because we're taking next week off. We'll be back as usual in the first week of January. Thanks for their help with this week's episode to Cynthia Crute and to Weidong Lin and Antonio Fernandez. And thanks to you for listening this week and this year. Look forward to speaking to you again in 2018.